0: But we thank you for gathering this morning as we come as as the Lord's chosen as the elect of God, as the saints, the bride of Christ, as we come to celebrate our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, His work on the cross, His continued mediating work for us before the Father as we are indwelt, regenerated, and guided by the Holy Spirit and God's Holy Word we come in celebration and communion with one another this morning. Uh, we are continuing in the Gospel according to Matthew. We will be um, taking the first nine verses of chapter fifteen, with a with a brief mention of the final verses of fourteen. Uh, the reason for that is really this entire segment, this entire section after the miracles of the five thousand being fed and Jesus walking on water enters into a dialogue that ends after that, and what we have is chapter 14 and goes all the way to verse 20 and 15, in an effort to not try and race through all of that, we'll be breaking it up into a couple of Sundays. But as I'm reading from 15, 1 through 9, if you are visiting, I will read uh, out loud, and after I'm finished reading, give everyone the opportunity to pray. Be an opportune time to pray after the hearing of the word and before entering to the time of this, this service in the ministry of the word is to um, ask God to purify your heart. Uh, be honest with confession of sin if, if you have some that you have not given over to God. And pray that the Holy Spirit will transform you more into the image of Christ as his word lays bare. Um, your heart. And then uh, I will pray for us corporately and we'll enter into the time of the word. Looking now in chapter 15, reading one through nine. Matthew wrote, Then Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. He answered them, And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, honor your father and your mother. And whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if anyone tells his father or his mother, what you would have gained from me is given to God. He need not honor his father So so for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You hypocrites. Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Please take this time to pray. Heavenly Father, as the church gathers here this morning in this local assembly, Lord, may you move us through God, the Holy Spirit, and through your holy and true word. That as we come to celebrate our risen Lord, Jesus Christ, we would be moved to confess our sins that we have laid bare before us through the word our high places and hidden sins Lord that we might show true and fearful reverence of our Lord and God to pray for the church now that they would be challenged through the word, through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then as well as challenged even more so, be comforted in the midst of this life, this life surrounded by and in being a part of and wandering through as a pilgrim in this fallen, broken world. That we know and believe through the truth and knowledge we have of God, through the spirit and the word, that this is a momentary Madness. Lord, and we look forward to that final eschaton. We look forward to the time when the king returns. To claim his bride. Purified. And made holy. And presents her to the father. The gift that the father gave to the son and presents him in its perfection. God, we will be there on that day until such a time. Strengthen our faith in the midst of our weakness. Let us pursue righteousness in all of life. And when we fail, because we will fail, we will be reminded of the grace of God. We will be crushed by our failure and pursue you even more. May we be a people then that reflect the knowledge of that mercy and grace that we have received to each other. And in our growth in Christ, the unbelieving world around us would be amazed and wonder at what it is that brings us joy. Glorify Yourself in our midst this morning, Lord. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. If there's anything that the modern church has lost, it's the idea and implementation of piety. Now, when I say the word pious, most of us go, that means a jerk. But piety was the essence of, of Christianity in the early church and the Reformation and for the traditions that followed. You see, being pious, we see it or view it as, quite frankly, as the Pharisees that we will see represented here today and how they're represented throughout all of the New Testament. Sticklers for tradition. Watching everyone like a hawk in all of society going, Oh, did you see that? Where it's right here. They didn't wash their hands when they ate bread. Sinner! That's how we view piety. But that's not what piety is. Piety is, is the idea of, of attached to the knowledge of God. The person who has knowledge of God is moved to the pursuit of holiness or the pursuit of obedience to that God. And so piety was something that always was seen as essential to the Christian faith. The person who has now received true knowledge of God through the gospel of Jesus Christ, transformed by the Holy Spirit, renewed And now God, the Holy Spirit, is is living in them, guiding them. That person now has true knowledge of who God is. And since they have true knowledge of who God is, they have true knowledge of what he's done for them. And when I say true knowledge, please don't mistake this and send me an email because I didn't say full knowledge. True knowledge in the sense of who we are. Sinners, broken, changing. Full knowledge of who he is, infinite, holy, unchanging. And that he has made a way for us to have covenant with him through Christ. And all of that knowledge is given by God. He is the first mover and the giver of the spirit and all of these things. So a person who is in Christ, who has full knowledge of God, understands their low estate and their great need for God. And that gives them a spirit of humility and a desire because of the goodness that God has shown them to pursue good works that He's laid out for them. Now, everybody write that down. That was my definition of piety. And this is the dialogue That we enter into in this next portion of Matthew's gospel is that what does it mean to revere God? Well, what it means to revere God is to pursue Him and live for Him. So, what did that mean to the Pharisees and the scribes? And then, what is Jesus' response? And since we're in half of a story today, We'll be taking some things I want to talk about this week that will still apply to next week and kind of the vice versa. But let's look now to the text. And I'm just briefly going to, to read 34 as it's, it's in that way Matthew lays it out, there, the end of, of chapter 14. After the walking on water that we did last week, which was prior to that, the feeding of the 5,000, which was prior to that, the death of John the Baptist, now it says in 34, 1434, And when they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret. And when the man at that place recognized him, Jesus, they sent around to all that region and brought him all who were sick and implored him that they might only touch the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. And so the, the author, Matthew himself, presents us differently than mark does or luke or john it's it's almost as a forethought of what's going to come and is connected to all the miracles that have just happened namely that jesus arrives somewhere after these after the the feeding and after the miracle with the disciples on the water and now he goes to gennesaret which is a northwestern edge of the sea of galilee near capernaum and when he arrives people know him and what do they do They find everyone who is in need and they send them to Jesus. And here again, it's not this big details of the speech that he's making before leaders or people or anything like that. They're just touching his clothes and being healed. Again, it goes back to something I mentioned last week that you can't lose sight of as we're going through Matthew's gospel. Since the beginning of the introduction of Jesus, that has been one thing that is you cannot be explained through natural means after another. The supernatural or the miraculous that goes along hand in hand with wherever Jesus goes. So after this time in Gennesaret, it says the following in 15. Then Pharisees and scribes came. It's a, if you're watching a movie, it's like the music, like dun-dun-dun, kind of. They came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said... Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. Now, they follow him from Jerusalem. In their wake or in the wake of Jesus and the disciples, what will they find? People talking about how they were blind and they see how they had leprosy and now they do not. How they were hungry and for some reason they were able to eat their fill in the middle of a desolate place. And all that happened was Jesus blessed the, the tiny amount of food that they had. And then they followed him and then everywhere they go, this, these people who are in direct opposition to Christ, his adversaries are following him. And in there, and there, as they're going, they're running into this stark reality that Jesus is doing something they can't do. He's doing something that no prophet of old has done, including Moses. Before their eyes is the impossible. Before their senses is everything they were supposed to be anticipating about Messiah. And yet when they find him, what do they say? We noticed your disciples don't wash their hands before they eat. It's a big charge. Now, a little history. Some of you might be coming to Fred's class, and this, you might be going through some of this or not. I, I don't know. If Fred's teaching it. And so that was an insult to Fred. If you don't know, Fred and I are friends, but generally, I like to insult him. And he knows that. And so I don't even know if he's here anymore. So it's no fun. But what's happening here is is something I haven't mentioned or we haven't talked about probably all the way since back in chapter 5. It was the things that we see with the Pharisees and the scribes. Often when people kind of read like Pharisees and scribes and they're talking about the law, they're imagining that the Pharisees have some type of, of, of foot, like firm foundation in the law when you hear things like this account. But they do not. And the reason is, as you're going to read the account, they're, they're, they're accusing Jesus not of breaking the law. They're accusing Jesus that his disciples are not doing what the Pharisees believe they should be doing. And so the way Pharisaical, or the what they call the, the tradition of the elders, worked was their time period between the Testaments, and really only about the hundred years prior to the writing of the New Testament in Jewish tradition, rose all these parties that you see in the Gospels, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Scenes, the Herodians, the Zealots. These were groups that rose up. Each had their own elders or teachers. Each had their own writings or oral traditions that they held to as a way to interpret the law. But what had happened is that that interpretation of the law was the binding aspect of society within each of these traditions. So the Pharisees and the scribes had made it to where random people had to do ceremonial washings just like the priests had to do in the law before they prepared a sacrifice. And so this wasn't, I hate to let you in on this, they didn't care about hygiene. They weren't saying, your disciples are gross they're not washing their hands before they eat no they're saying your disciples are irreverent your disciples are not pious your disciples do not want to please god that's the charge and so the charge then as the reason they're coming to jesus is, is we think of things like hey if you have a problem someone like go to them and tell them hey You, guy right there with the temper and the sword that likes to cut ears. You didn't wash your hands, and you're supposed to. But that's not how it worked. These were Jesus' disciples. What the Pharisees, what the adversaries, and the adversaries in the Gospels have one thing in common. They have in common with what Satan has in common with them, that they are antagonistic to the work of God. And so they are adversaries. When they are adversaries to Christ, they are adversaries to God. And so it's, it's antithesis to what Christ's ministry is. So they're going to Jesus because he's their master. And so because the disciples are doing things like purposefully not following the rules that the Pharisees have laid out in recent decades of how a religious person should eat food, they are then going, it's purposeful that they're doing this. Jesus then is the one who's teaching them that they don't have to obey our rules. And what's the real problem is they've equated their rules with the actual commandments of God. Now, as good Protestants, well, as Protestants, A lot of you probably think of only one thing when you read this passage. Roman Catholicism. Who are the people who wed tradition and equal it to the word? Roman Catholics. Well, I'm not going to let you off so easy today. Tradition supplanting the word or becoming equal to it, I hope we see today, we are just as guilty. And any time you come to a church service or you're reading the word or you're in prayer and your first thoughts are someone else and their sin, you're doing it wrong. So, why do your disciples... Or your followers, you're the master. Why do they break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. The charge is not against the disciples, it's against Jesus. You have taught your students to be irreverent to God based on Pharisaical, trans, Pharisaical commentary on the law. Now, the irony of this is if the Sadducees were there, who had their own group of elders and were always in contention with Pharisees, they would have been fine with Jesus and his disciples not washing their hands. The Essenes would have been really angry about them not washing their hands. The Zealots would have only been angry if washing their hands didn't lead to an uprising against Rome, and the Herodians would only have cared if they washed their hands while they were sober. <laughs> so even within all of these traditions in Jerusalem, the Pharisees were kind of on an island, but because they were there following him, they were the ones saying, you haven't done what I want you to do. Have any, has anyone ever, maybe not said that, but how often a day do you think it? I raise my hand in guilt because none of you will, Right? I think all the time, and Christina's in the room, sometimes she's in here, but she's able to see on my face when I'm thinking it, like, should have done what I'm thinking. If we did what I was thinking right now, everything would be okay, and, and that's how I don't govern my household that way, but in reality, this is the pettiness with how the Pharisees are interacting with jesus your disciples therefore you their teacher are not doing what we say the law means therefore you do not obey love or revere god that's the charge do you see it the son of god is being charged with a lack of piety towards god Because his followers are not doing something that is never prescribed in the law. Outside of the priestly caste preparing sacrifice. But the Pharisees thought that that was such a good way to show your holiness that everyone should do it. This is in a book called the Mishnah. I'm not going to read from it. I've read from it before. So Jesus in his answer does the following. They've equated their traditions to the word or to the law. He answered them. And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, honor your father and your mother. And whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if anyone tells his father or his mother, what you would have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father so for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word. And just to emphasize that phrase, he's saying they've made an absence or a negation of the law. They've taken the law and hidden it. And so what this whole exchange is about is he goes to the Decalogue and he points to the commandment about honoring or revering your father and mother. And part of that in the law would come that if, you've, if, you've, if you're a fan of Leviticus numbers, at least in a cursory way, you would understand that there were obligations for the pious or religious Jew. Meaning that because your parents took care of you when you were a child and now you have your own household, And you have your own money and you have your own abilities, but your parents are now at the stage of life where they can no longer do for themselves. It was an obligation for the religious Jew to then reverse that order of when they were a child being taken care of by their parents. They were to see it as a joy, an extension of their godliness, and the favor that had been shown by them by through their parents, which was also. I supposed to point people back to God's favor and then return it by taking their parents into their household as children, as people who were dependent on them. It was an expectation. And so Jesus brings up this, this tradition that is actually in the law, and he points to something in Mishnah, which is the tradition that the Pharisees are saying. And the Pharisees were saying it was lawful for a person not to do that if they gave all their money to the temple. Because then they could say they were taking care of God and that came before their parents. You hear an echo of James in that. What is true religion? Widows, orphans. Person who who won't take care of their own family, denies the faith. Jesus is, is taking the actual law, laying it before his accusers, and then he's taking their traditions and lining it up with the law, with which there was no leaky place to where you could suddenly go, but if you give all your money to temple, then it's okay to let your parents live in poverty and loneliness, and rejection. That was a void of godliness. So Jesus is attacked in a manner by saying that you have rejected God, you are not pious or or worshipful or reverent towards God, which is evidenced in the fact that Your disciples won't do something that we want them to do that we say is equal to the law but isn't found anywhere in the law. Shame on you. Jesus is like, oh, really? Well, allow me to counter that by quoting the law and then taking a tradition that they held to and holding it up in light of the law and showing it wanting and then telling them what you do is an erasing of the word. Your tradition has supplanted the word in your eyes. And understand, in no uncertain terms, in this confrontation, Jesus is confronting the religious authorities here as people who don't believe in God. And it's evidenced by the way that they make a void or a disappearance of the law. Think of the situation The people responsible, or putting themselves out there as responsible and as the authority to tell Israel how to live according to the law of God, have pursued the Son of God, accused Him of godlessness, and He, in turn, has shown them to be godless. And then he says the following. You hypocrites. Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. When he calls them hypocrites, the word means to be a pretender. It means someone who's faking it. Now, when we think of pretenders, you can think of things like actors. They play pretend for a living and get paid a lot of money and have mental breakdowns and substance abuse problems. But they play pretend for a living. Our children some of us adults like to play pretend. It's a natural extension of imagination. But what Jesus is saying with this with this confrontation here, you hypocrites, it's the first time he's addressing them. He alludes to them earlier in the book when he talks about don't be like the hypocrite who makes a big show of himself and prays out loud and makes trumpets blow when he when he goes to give his offering and all of these things. But here, he calls them, as a title, pretenders. And then, quotes Isaiah 29 to show them, and, and imagine this, imagine them as religious authorities, used to people listening to everything they say. This is how you fulfill the law. Wash your hands, do this, do that. And again, we've talked about Mishnah, in the past about the absolute insanity of the levels of, of how it goes, like when Jesus healed on the Sabbath, and there's multitude of layers of what you could do on the Sabbath, how far you could walk. If you walked half a mile, that wasn't working on the Sabbath. If you walked a mile or more, that was working on the Sabbath. And all the things that they're interacting with here. And yet, Jesus is telling them, "You pretend at godliness. You're faking godliness. In a culture, and a tradition, saturated by the law and the prophets and the writings and the long-awaited hope of God's rescue of Israel and who's leading the people of Israel in religious life are people faking it. if you look around the country that we live in, it's not just Rome that's faking it. Our country is suffused with false teachers, with doctrines that are simply traditions of men. No one wants to talk about what it means to live a life defined by piety, in full reverence and belief in God, in a full understanding of His goodness, leading you to desire Him more. No, what they'll say is, doesn't matter. Jesus, the only important thing, is your relationship to Jesus? Everything else doesn't matter. You in a relationship with Jesus? You in a relationship with Jesus? Well, what about when I fail? And what about it? are you in a relationship with Jesus? Yeah, it's all you need. Show me that. We're called to something more than this. More than, as we've mentioned in, in, in several weeks now, more than the mediocrity that is seen everywhere people died in the thousands in the tens of thousands simply because they refused to say that jesus wasn't god it's all they had to say they could believe it all they had to do was say it in front of crowds yeah jesus isn't god and then they would go like yeah but i don't I, I i still believe he is but they refused why because they knew the reward isn't here and now in our comfort the reward isn't the here and now in security in our bank accounts or our children our hope is in when christ comes back our blessed hope is the second coming of christ where he culminates all things to the purpose of his glory in a massive and beautiful, terrifying recreation event with which we will be a part if you are in Christ. And then in the here and now is a life in pursuit of Him. And yet for most who call themselves Christian in the West, it doesn't even mean knocking the dust off their Bible that they use as a coaster. I'm going to read some things for you. For some theologians of the past, some of them lost their life for the faith. I want you to see what it meant to be and what it means to be sold out for Christ, to be pious. One says, we are God's. Let us therefore live for him and die for him. We are God's. Let his wisdom and will therefore rule our actions. We are gods. Let all the parts of our life accordingly strive toward him as our only lawful goal. This person died for him. Another wrote, piety is rooted in the knowledge of God, which I've quoted earlier. The knowledge of God induces love joined with reverence. And a life defined by this attitude can sojourn in a foreign fallen world fully equipped to wage war against sin. Another says the following. He asks a question and then answers the question. How do we glorify God? It begins with obedience to God's word, which means taking refuge in Christ for forgiveness of our sins daily. Do you hear that? Hear it again. Obedience to God's word means taking refuge in Christ for forgiveness of our sins daily. Not just the one-time event of when you came to faith And acknowledging daily that you are sinful and rebellious. And in that rebellion, being reminded of who you are in the word, not according to the traditions of men, according to the word, you are a precious possession. You are an adopted son or daughter who has a inheritance that is unfathomable. And as such taking refuge shelter as armor in the knowledge of God of who you are in Christ knowing him through the scriptures it means you have to actually read them we met yesterday the end of the masculine mandate book and we were talking about things one of the curses in the modern church, is passive men. It's a curse. The passivity of a Christian man is the death of the church. They're called to lead their families. Not just in work, but obviously in work. But also in leading their children to faith. Your children need to see you and hear you Men, read the word. They need you on your knees praying with them as individuals. And yes, they need to hear you sing praises at the dinner table with them. But passivity, there's no place for that in the church among the men. But as we talked about this, there was another thing that came up. The dreaded phrase. Well, my wife is the reader. Or my wife is the theologian. That, that stirs violence in my heart when I hear that. Please don't say that to me. That was a joke. I'm not, I'm not violent. Maybe that's the wrong word. Anger. Frustration. Be a reader. It doesn't just include men. Ladies often read a lot and a lot and a lot of books about the Bible and often will feel ill-equipped to read the Bible. But what we have here, which is good, books are good, books that help you understand the word, theology, all of these things, the Christian life. But what we need to be, where we find our refuge is through the Spirit's reckoning with us as we read God's holy word. We have to be people of the word men and women children who are have come to faith without the word it's like trying to work a job that you refuse to be trained in or doing ikea furniture by going i got it <laughs> just give me a hammer i'll figure it out it's a wood pile knowing him through scripture, serving him with a loving heart, doing good works in gratitude for his goodness. I want you to hear that one. Good works, not because you believe God will be pleased with you if you do them, but good works which are prepared for us beforehand because of an innate gratitude towards God. Your understanding of who you are In who you once were and who you are now in him induces thankfulness and joy and gratitude in a heart that wants to serve the church and others. There's more, but I want to end it on this one. Exercising self-denial to the point of loving one's enemies. Self-denial, if there's anything that is a forgotten art in the church of the West, it's self-denial. Self-denial, what does that mean? That sounds icky. Because it has self before it, and what comes after it is an indulgence. We are an indulgent people. We are people that worship comfort, relaxation, and anything That's sparkly and shines. Or you can hold in your hand and do this. What about self-denial? The essence of the Christian life. A recognition of who you are and denying self. How do you combat sin if you won't deny your own indulgences? When you don't deny yourself, you're rejecting what Christ has done for you. It is the essence of the Christian faith to recognize who you are, your sinful indulgences, and flee from them and put them to death and to understand and view them as the past. There's no hope for church in the West. If we don't start rediscovering the beauty of Christian piety, hard work, because we've already received a grand reward. There's my challenge. Here's the comfort you find yourself in a place going, there's too much. There's too much indulgence. There's too much apathy. There's too much whatever it might be. You don't know what I'm going through. I don't. Some of you I do, but others I don't. Christ knows. He knows your heart. He knows your every thought, every deed. And that isn't supposed to make us go... See, I'm not worthy of them. Yes, you are. You are not worthy of them, but that's not up to you. He has called you worthy. And as such, when you run through that list, you don't know, you don't know, and I don't know, but he knows every thought, every deed, and he wants you to give it over to him so that you might live this life we're reading about, this life of total dedication to God. Don't be a Pharisee. Don't be one that holds your traditions of men and fake piety. Be someone who is, is so infused with the knowledge of God that you've been given through the Spirit and the Word, and the Spirit is at work in you and sanctifying you. And you are so moved by that, that out of the overflow comes joy, peace, and all of the fruits that come with it. And you can't do it alone. Husbands and wives, you've got to talk to each other. You've got to encourage each other. You have to challenge each other. You have to do the same for your children. Not making them into little Pharisees by just always pointing to to a moralist lifestyle, do this, do this, do this, do this, and I'll be happy with you and so will be God. Rather, you have to let them see the beauty of why Christ is calling them to salvation so that in their own life, they receive that gift of the spirit and live out a life dedicated to God because they too understand who they were and who they are now. And as a church, there are no lone rangers. There's no pulling up your bootstraps in the community of faith. There's holding one another up. There's lifting one another up. There's reprimanding one another when need be in love, in graciousness. My hope, the elders' hope, my hope, the hope for all of you that are here and those that are not here because of the rain, that for this church, it's about holy living. It's about glorifying God in community with one another. It's about the gospel going out in ways that we saw in the first century and in the book of Acts not bringing unbelievers to church and going, save them. Rather, you going into a relationship with your neighbors, your co-workers, sharing your life with them, sharing your faith with them, and then coming to faith through your own evangelistic efforts. It's time for reform. Amen. And I hope it starts here. Let's pray. Dear God, I pray for the church. I pray for the hearts of our people. I pray for the Spirit's moving and stirring. That the mediocre Christian life is no life at all. We are called to lives of complete and full dedication and obedience to God, something we are unable to do on our own. He has given us the Spirit. And yet we still sin, we still err, we still fail. But God, let our hearts be turned more and more to him. Let us turn to the word. Let us fall on our faces in prayer. Let us not forsake the assembly, but continue in fellowship of the saints. So that we might glorify our Lord and Savior in our lives. We pray in this continued worship time, our public worship to you. The name of Jesus Christ is glorified and his church is edified. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.